Romans, Romans, and we're going to be looking in chapter 2, and if you have your Bible, turn it over, and the slide is going to probably show verses 1 through 5, and that's because I didn't let Sandra know it's going to be 1 through 12, and that's, uh, that's my fault, but we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12, so if you have your Bible, uh, you might want to follow along. As we're going to see, Paul is starting a new section in, his, uh, in the book. Uh, he's sort of turning the corner on this, in this conversation he's having concerning the nature of sin. And uh, we're going to be paying attention to that this morning under the title of A Message for the Moral. Romans chapter 2, let's begin reading at verse 1. This is God's Word. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man... Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Let's ask the Lord to bless His Word. Father in heaven, we thank You that You speak to us in Your Word. And that is your desire that we hear it, and so you've given us the Spirit that we might understand the things of God, and we pray that Spirit then today would just free our minds and hearts to receive this truth and, and to thank you for it, to have our lives tra- changed by it, and we'll give you the, the praise in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've ever tried to talk to someone about the gospel, you've uh, probably realized that one of the primary reasons why people do not receive or embrace the gospel is because they do not believe they really need it. Um, They see themselves as fundamentally good, decent people, moral people, uh, maybe even religious or spiritual people. Uh, maybe they've, they uh, walked the aisle um, when they were young, and that, maybe that was 30 years ago, but they're, they're quite sure that having, having done that and um, been baptized, they're, they're okay with God. Or maybe they had some um, moving spiritual experience uh, that has given them just a sense that they're, um, they don't really need a Savior to die on a cross for their sin. Maybe that describes you this morning, that you... You, you understand the gospel, but it doesn't really seem that necessary to you, or maybe it doesn't seem that precious to you. There are a lot of uh, Christians who profess to believe and do believe in the gospel, and yet do not experience the, the, the glory of it and the love of God revealed in it, because it, it, for the same reason, we, it, it, we struggle to really sense our need for it. 
Well, after detailing uh, quite thoroughly the crimes of the world in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, to the end of the chapter, verse 32, uh, Paul now moves to address the, the moral world, the religious people, uh, the people who don't really sense a need for a Savior. And so we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, before we get into the, the, the text itself, it's just important for us to remember where we are in Paul's discussion. Uh, he is going to spend an extended amount of time talking about the reality of human sin. And the reason is because he wants to highlight the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is writing, uh, the purpose of this letter is to magnify the glory of the gospel as the salvation of God for sinners. And uh, he wants people to experience the saving power of God in, in, in the gospel. He wants people to experience the love of God in the gospel. He, in chapter 5, he'll talk about the love of God has been poured into our hearts. Well, how does that happen? Well, Paul will say that happens as we see that God shows His love for us in this, that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And Paul wants us to know that love, to experience that love. But the only way that we're going to experience the love of God for us being poured into our hearts is if we're willing to accept the designation of sinner. You see, the experiential power of the gospel is not found in the words, Christ died for us. It's found in the words, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That's where the experiential power of the gospel is found. And that's why Paul takes so much time here in the beginning of his, of his letter to deal with the reality of human sin, what it is, what it means, what it deserves. And so we're going to be continuing in Paul's flow of thought here as he's uh, un just laying out in wonderful but convicting truth the reality of human sin. We've already seen that Paul has said that the whole world is under the wrath of God. Why? Because men have denied God. They refuse to acknowledge Him as God. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship images and created things rather than the Creator Himself. And so, God in response hands people over to their sin, to a depraved mind, to do what ought not to be done. We've, we've talked all about that. We've learned that every sin that people commit against each other is rooted in our fundamental sin against God. That when the vertical relationship with God is broken, the horizontal relationships are, um, will, will suffer the result of that. We'll be devastated by that. And Paul gave us a list of the sorts of, of sins we can expect to see in a world that has denied God. Verse 29 of chapter 1, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It is not a pretty picture. And it's a very accurate description of the world in which we live today. But now as we come to chapter 2, we come to a new section, and Paul's going to spend the next chapter and a half talking about the fact that moral people, religious people, are also without excuse. 
and are also under the wrath of God. First this morning, we'll look at the charge that Paul makes, the charge, and then the grounds for the charge, and then the, the thirdly, uh, third will be the sin of presumption. The first thing to notice as you come to chapter 2 is a change in pronoun. If you had been reading this through, you would have probably have noticed it. Up to this point, as Paul's been discussing the, the, the tragic human condition, he has always used third-person pronoun they, they and them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They neither glorified God nor gave thanks to Him. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So God gave them over to a depraved mind. And they are full of envy and murder and strife, etc., etc. It's always been they, them. And now suddenly, Paul brings this different pronoun, you, singular. Of whom is Paul speaking when he says, you, O man? Well, he's writing to the church in Rome, but it's, it's evident that he's not, directly, uh, he's not a direct, um, addressing them directly. Uh, Paul, is, uh, what he's doing here is using a form of writing called a diatribe. A, a diatribe is a conversation that's happening between a teacher and a student or a teacher and an opponent. So you're listening into a conversation. And the conversation we're listening in on is a conversation that Paul would have had countless times with his fellow Jews. The you in the diatribe stands for the Jews of Paul's day. You see, Paul has just revealed here that the world is under the wrath of God, as we've said. And that the, 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 the world is full of perversion, sexual immorality, and... and uh, and all gossip and all that, just as we've said. But Paul knows that his Jewish readers would read that, and the they and the them, they would uh, equate with Gentiles, the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. That's simply how they would hear it, without even a second thought. And there would be reasons for them to do that. So when Paul talks about, uh, you know, they worship images and creatures, well, the the Jews don't do that. The Gentiles do in in their pagan temples. And when Paul talks about being given over to sexual perversion, well, that that wasn't really the Jewish world. Certainly not the way it was in the Gentile world. The Gentiles gloried in sexual immorality. They had feasts celebrating it. It was a part of the practice of their temple worship. And so when when the Jews are are hearing uh, chapter 1, verse 18 to the end, they're they're seeing they and them, that's the Gentile world. And and if you're a Jew listening to Paul uh, in this this conversation, you would have agreed agreed wholeheartedly with his depiction of the Gentile world. And, and the fact that they are without excuse. And the fact that the wrath of God is, is rightly upon them. You would have felt that to the marrow of your bones. Amen. Preach it, Paul. It's exactly right. And you would have been thankful, so thankful that you are not like them. You were a Jew. You were a descendant of Abraham. And you would have been confirmed in your condemnation of them. Every conversation you've had with your friends about how vile and disgusting and perverse and unregenerate and reprobate the Gentiles are, you would sense Paul would, would, would agree with you wholeheartedly. 
And that's where it gets really uncomfortable because now Paul turns to his Jewish audience and says, you, first person singular, you, second person singular, sorry, you are just as guilty. You are just as much under the wrath of God as any Gentile is. I'm not sure it's it's possible for us to grasp what what a stunning statement that would have been to Jewish ears. Paul is arguing that there is no difference between a moral, religious Jew and a pagan, pagan, idol-worshiping, homosexual Gentile when it comes to being a sinner justly under the wrath of God. That is so offensive to them. It's a nuclear bomb dropped right in the lap of all their dearest and most deeply held convictions about God and judgment and their identity. You see, their identity is rooted in the fact that they are not like the Gentiles. They are different, distinct. They are Abraham's descendants. They are God's special people, God's chosen people, all of which is true. Of course that's who they are. But you see, the nasty, diabolical lie that sprung up in the shadow of God's covenant kindness was the belief that their corporate election as a nation and their ethnic uh, relationship to Abraham was sufficient to protect them from the penalty of the law, the penalty due to their sin. So Douglas Moose says, the Jews believed that their corporate election as God's people combined with sincere efforts to keep the law sufficed for salvation. All that was required was to be a good Jew. But that's not all that's required. Remember what John the Baptist said to the Jews of his day in Matthew 3 verse 9. He says, do not presume, which was exactly what they were doing, do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The issue isn't, are you a child of Abraham? The issue is, what's your relationship to the law? Do you bear good fruit? Do you you obey the law? And so Paul's charge to the the Jews is, uh, no, you don't. You're just as guilty as any Gentile. And what are the bases? What are the grounds? Well, he gives us two grounds. Verse 1, the Jews do the same things. They're just as guilty of violating the law. And and secondly, verse 2 and 3, God judges according to truth. Let's look at the first ground. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. How would you like to go to uh, be brought into court because um, you were, um, you know, guilty of, of stealing things, stealing cars and, and, um, and jewelry out of jewelry stores, right? And the evidence was overwhelming. And you go and you're brought into the courtroom and there's the judge and you recognize him. Uh, he's, 
He's your partner in crime. He was right there with you doing exactly the same thing. Well, you would uh, you say that judge is completely, um, has no basis for judging you. What right does he have? He's guilty of the same thing. Well, Paul is saying uh, to the Jews, you're the judge. And you've been judging, you've been judging the Gentile world, and you're guilty of the exact same things. And of course, the Jew would vehemently protest the charge. We, we're not guilty of the same things. We haven't exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We have the law, the Torah. It's read every week in our synagogue. We, we try to practice it. We, we don't engage in gross sexual perversion like the Gentiles do. Paul, what are you talking about? And Paul would say, well, what about the vice list? Gossip and slander and malice. What about arrogance, being boastful? I mean, those were trademark signs of Jewishness. They were proud, arrogant. What about the sins of, well, being foolish and faithless? That basically describes their history as a people. And so you see, while they've been judging the Gentiles, they practice the same things. And Paul says, thereby, you condemn yourself. Verse 3, notice, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? These are devastating questions. You think you can just stand there and judge everybody else when you're guilty of the same thing? And do you think that, that God's not going to notice? Seriously? You're guilty of the same thing and, and you think you're going to escape the judgment of God who sees all things? It's a strong word. It's a necessary word for the Jews of, of, of Paul's day and it's a necessary word for the church of our day. We can easily adopt a Jewish mindset in relation to the world. And look at the world and scoff and condemn them and judge them, unregenerate, reprobates. We can easily adopt the language right of those people. Those LGBTQ people polluting the minds of our children. Those, those socialists destroying our economy. Those drug dealers and sex traffickers and abortionists, those people, they are in grievous sin. They are fully deserving of the wrath of God. And of course, all of that is true. Everyone right, who sins is deserving of the wrath of God. The question is, what about you? What about me? Do you suppose, O oh angry Christian, as you judge people for breaking the law of God, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God when you also break the law of God? Do you think that God's just going to turn a blind eye to that hypocrisy? Do you think that we'll escape the judgment of God as we judge the world but are just as guilty as the world? That's the first ground. Jews are without excuse because they break the same law. So it's, it's exactly what Paul would say to any person who's trusting in their morality today. You do the same things. 
You have gossip and murder and malice and lust and deceit and covetousness all in, all in your heart. And you, you, there's no difference. Secondly, God judges according to the truth. So he says in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. I think the NIV captures the, the nuance of the Greek here maybe a little better when he says, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. In other words, uh, when God comes to the judgment seat, he's not biased. There's no tipping of the scales. He judges simply, purely according to the facts, the facts of our life, the facts of um, our relationship to the law. You see, now every moral Jew would have agreed with that principle. The difference was that they believed that part of the truth by which God judges is the truth of ethnic preference or more religious preference, maybe a better way to say it. Because being a child of Abraham is not just an ethnic reality, it's a, it's a religious reality. And so they, they believe that God just makes a distinction when it comes to the law. Remember what they said to Jesus, right? We have Abraham as our father. That means we're safe. They sincerely believed that being part of the covenant community was sufficient to protect them from divine judgment. But Paul just takes a hammer to that. It just shows that being a good Jew does not in any way deflect the judgment of God. There's no hiding place there from wrath. People, people are, are going to be horribly uh, surprised on the last day when they stand before the judgment throne of God and realize that in, in truth, God judges according to the facts, according to the, the actual sin that's been committed. And he pounds that point home in verse 6 through 11 Notice he says, God, he will render to each one according to his work. According to what you actually did, according to what you said, according to what you thought, according to what you did or did not do. All your failures to do the things that God requires. That, that, that will be the basis. Not uh, how much Jewish blood maybe do you have in you? Were you part of the covenant community? What did you do? And then verse 11, God shows no partiality. No partiality. So the same law, the law of God, applies to Jews and Gentiles alike, and the same punishment is given, Jews and Gentiles alike, to those who violate that law. This is the principle of the law, and that's what Paul's establishing here. If your mind is a little bit confused right now, just hang in there. This is the principle of the law. God... The, uh, has given his law, right? He's written it on our hearts. We know what is right, what is wrong. Um, the, the scriptures clearly lay out what God requires, what God forbids. And the law is, if, if you sin against the law, you will die. That's the law principle. If you keep it, you will live. If you obey the law perfectly, you will live. But if you break it, and if you break it in only one place, because the Bible teaches to break it in one place is to break all of it, then the law principle is that you will die. And so being a Jew clearly is no protection against wrath. Being a good person is no protection against divine judgment. Being a moral person, being a religious person, being a spiritual person, being a member of the covenant community, none of that protects you 
from judgment for the things you've done. If you don't, if we just got to let that truth settle in. That's the law principle. And it is a great sin to ignore it and to presume on God's grace. Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Why, um, why is God so kind to you? Well, see, there's a, there's a twisted uh, nature of our, of our hearts that misinterprets God's kindness. The Jews right, had been va- recipients of vast kindness and patience. Paul speaks of that, of, of patience and forbearance and kindness. And the Jews interpreted that to mean that, well, of course God is kind and patient with us. We're His children, and, uh, and we're the descendants of Abraham. And, and therefore, uh, God does not treat us according to our sin. He doesn't, He's not that concerned about the, you know, the, the, the mistakes that we make. You see, so you see, people don't come to repentance. People misinterpret. The Jews were misinterpreting the, the kindness of God as a divine approval for who they were. They took the patience of God to mean that God isn't really that concerned about their sin. And, and Paul says, because of their presumption, they're storing up for themselves wrath, right? Because of your hard and impenitent hearts. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repent, which means to acknowledge the sin of our sin and turn from it to righteousness. But Paul says, you're not doing that because you're saying, well, I don't think God's that concerned about our sin. And your hard, impenitent heart is storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's a really sober thought. Friends, we have to realize that this sin of presumption is, is epidemic in our day. It probably always has been, given the, na- the human nature, but it's everywhere. In the world we live in, people presume on the grace and the kindness and the patience of God all the time. God's not going to judge me. Look, look how wealthy I am. Look how healthy I am. Look, look, look what a good person I am. I don't need this message of doom and gloom. Get out of here. It's prevalent, it's epidemic in the church, the evangelical church. Christian Smith, a sociologist from Notre Dame, has done a, a vast study, the most extensive study ever done of the religious lives of American young people, and found that the great, great majority of evangelical young people who profess Christ do not believe that God would ever judge them for sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. The idea that that they could be sent to hell for something as natural and normal and human as as that, it just just doesn't compute. They they look at you like you you got, you know, something strange growing out of your head. And Christian Smith says they, they believe in God, right? And they go to church, at least sometimes, and they're good people, and they have good intentions, and they're trying hard, and, and, and God seems to be blessing them. They have a loving family. They're flourishing at school. They have lots of friends. It is, it's just not conceivable to them that God would send them to hell for something as normal, as human, as premarital sex, 
or telling, you know, a lie now and again, or, or, or cheating a little bit on a test, or, or gossiping, or slandering. It just doesn't seem feasible that that could be true, and so they don't repent. And they just continue on in their sin. All the while believing that God's perfectly fine with it. Someone sent me a video clip of a young woman who'd been converted by a street preacher recently. And this young woman, I think she's 24 years old, uh, and had just been profoundly converted in Australia. She was going down the street with her friend, and there was a man preaching the gospel. And, and she was stunned by the fact that God would, would judge her for her sin and, and convicted of her sin. And, and she repented, and she's just with this with great enthusiasm and emotion, saying, I just realized I had to leave my boyfriend because God doesn't like fornication. He does not like it. That's what she said. He does not like it. So many people in the evangelical church do not believe that's true. And so they don't repent. And the Bible says, do not be deceived. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That an unrepentant, impenitent heart will not receive grace. Now, this is a problem not just for the evangelical world. It's a problem for the Reformed Church. Why is it that the Reformed Church is so often not known for its piety, not known for its grace? Why is there so much stuff under the hood that stews there and, and, and there's just sort of a, we just live with it. I, I went to high school with, I bet every kid in my class uh, would profess to be a Christian. And yet the number of them who actually thought seriously about what God likes and doesn't like was extremely small. We all just believe we're covenant kids. We're, we're, we're in the covenant. We're elect. Certainly, a little fornication and partying and cussing, whatever it might be. I mean, this just, they're just, they just weren't sins that anybody was, was concerned really about. At least not in general. And I got classmates here who can, who can vouch for it. What happened? Well, we, we were presuming on the kindness of God and, and, and our covenant identity. This is a problem in our own lives. We presume, don't we, on the grace of God, life is going well. God must be happy with me. Um, I, I believe good things. I go to a good church. I, I really do. And, and, and yet I remain unrepentant in my pet sins. I, I remember a friend of mine just, just nailing me once saying, you don't take seriously this sin. You're not taking it seriously. And he was absolutely right. I knew it was sin. I confessed it was sin, but, but, it, but it didn't seem to be something that profoundly serious that I had to repent of it and turn away from it and put it to death. I think we all could admit we're guilty to some, some degree of doing exactly that. So what, where do we go from here? What hope is there? Because the fact is that we have all sinned against the law of God, and, and God judges according to our 
relation to the law, and he shows no partiality. And our religious efforts, our morality, our, our spiritual experiences, none of it will be sufficient to protect us on the day of judgment. Every single one of us, friends, every single one of us is deserving of hell. And every single one of us, if God should send us there, could only say, you are just. That is the immutable, irrefutable principle of the law of God. But, one of the best words in the Bible, but the principle of the law isn't the only operative principle in the affairs of God and man. This is what makes the gospel so beautiful. You see, in the the sending of His Son, Jesus, God has invaded this world with the principle of the gospel, the principle of grace. And it is a principle which does not ignore the principle of the law, but it fulfills the principle of the law. That Jesus was made a substitute for us, that He took on our objective guilt, and that He bore the objective reality of divine wrath due to our guilt in our place, and every sinner who confesses their sin and believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, will be saved from the wrath of God, from the judgment we deserved from the hell that was yawning, gaping, eternal abyss. That's what we've been saved from. And that's what the gospel does. And that's what only the gospel can do. Your religious experiences will not save you from hell. Your morality won't save you. Your intentions won't save you. Your theology won't save you. Jesus alone On a cross, bearing your sin, suffering the wrath you deserve, Jesus alone rescues us from the wrath of God. And all of this, you see, God did for us while we were yet sinners, while we were hating Him, denying Him. That's where we see the love of God. He shows His love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died, Christ died for us. You see, and, and when you sense that you, that you rightfully are standing on the precipice of hell and that God in grace has rescued you, well, that, how amazing is, is, is the love of God? Why would He do that for you? Why would He do that for me? Why? Because he loved you. He loved you. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the love that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. And there my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Do you know that to be true? Have you experienced that personally, in truth, as you've come to Jesus, the one who loved you and gave his life for you? You can know it. You can know it today. And maybe you knew it once in your past and it's been a long time and and you wondered where your joy has gone. Well, it's right here, friends. 
as you simply face the truth of, of your sin, what you've, all the, 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 the crimes that you've actually done that deserve the justice of God and the love of God in Jesus that rescued you. Face the truth of your sin and, and then embrace the truth of Jesus Christ crucified for you and all that that provides to you. Receive it. God's love for you, the sinner in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That will transform your life. That will give you a power to forgive. It will give you the power to repent. It will give you the power to humble yourself. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt and all my wicked, stupid, foolish pride. And were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far, far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul and my life, my all. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, God, I thank you for Jesus. Because without him, Father, we would all be living a short life headed for an eternal damnation. For we have sinned, every single one of us, in thought and word and deed. And were you to cast us to hell today, we could only say that you are just. Father, thank you that you are also kind and gracious and forgiving and that you've provided for us a Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I, I just pray for those of us who've forgotten the joy of our salvation because we've gotten accustomed to being religious and trying our best. And we've forgotten that it's grace and grace alone from beginning to end that saves us. And so we've lost our love for Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that you'd give us the grace to see him today crucified for us, bearing my sin, loving me and dying for me, and then, then that we would love him in truth. And that as we, as we stand there at the foot of the cross, Lord, we, we, we are able to pour contempt on all of our wicked pride and be humbled and transformed by the power of the gospel. Father, there may be some here this morning who've never, who've, who've not yet come to see Jesus this way and, or themselves in this way, and I pray, oh God, that your, your word this morning would penetrate those hearts, our hearts, and that, Lord, today, every person in this room, and, and Lord, I pray particularly for those who've never come to Christ, would have the grace by your Holy Spirit to confess their sin and call on his name and be saved. And we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and confess that there's nothing in us worthy of redemption, worthy of salvation. It's all in Jesus Christ, and let's rejoice in that together, not in me.
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in Jesus Christ. Amen.